Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Jazz Lewis not only has one of the coolest names in American politics, but is also one of its brightest stars. He started as a student and community activist, became a senior advisor to one of the most powerful people in Congress, and is now a delegate and a leader in the Maryland legislature. We talk about that journey and the lessons he learned along the way, especially as a young black leader. We talk about his groundbreaking criminal justice reforms and his efforts to create economic opportunity. Listen to Delegate Jazz Lewis and hear the future of the Democratic Party. Enjoy. Maryland Delegate Jazz Lewis, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here, Tim. I am excited to be talking to you today because you've had, you're a very young man, but you've had a active career really pushing public policy from all angles. Can you talk a little bit about how you got engaged in public life, what drew you to it, and, yeah. uh, and what you've been doing? Uh, sure. So, I got involved with politics and policy as a student on the campus of University of Maryland. Uh, I originally went to college with the goal of majoring in architecture, and I got an organizing bug during the recession. I worked my way through school playing guitar at local churches and things like that. And during the recession, the state legislature had proposed increasing tuition, as many did across the country, which would have priced me out. So I kind of said, hell no, I won't go. <laughs> and me and my friends organized about a thousand students to go to the president of the school and then later on the legislature so they can find the money. And they did find uh, the money, but that organizing bug, it's, it's stuck, you know? And from there, I became a community organizer working in Baltimore, later in Philadelphia. I went back to school to really focus on a lot of the policies I learned in the streets of Baltimore and Philly and got my master's of public policy back at University of Maryland. Go Terps to anyone who's listening. <laughs> and then coming out of there, I joined the staff of Congressman uh, Steny Hoyer, our U.S. Majority Leader, who has been a phenomenal mentor for me in my life, both personally as a husband and father, but also as an elected leader. I originally managed his campaign and then moved over to his staff where I advised him on issues of housing affordability, criminal justice reform, small business, racial wealth issues in totality. And in 2016, I was Hillary's political director for the state of Maryland while working for Steny. You know, so, you know, we did our job in Maryland. We went overwhelmingly, but unfortunately, obviously Trump came in. And while everybody was so, I think, in despair about where our country was going, that's when I first started thinking about, well, maybe it's time to get in the game. I listened to President Obama's speech and I was thinking, you know, maybe elected office is something I should look at. And a position became available. Someone stepped down from a role there needed to be an appointment. 
And the elders in the district in which I lived brought me for a meeting. I actually didn't think I was going to be selected at this meeting. I thought they brought me to the meeting to help advise whoever they was going to pick to get through the appointment process and then set up their campaign so that they can win. I was 27 at the time. I've been married for six months and like a week before I put an offer on a house. So I went in that room thinking I was going to get put to work, not that I would lead. And as soon as I sat down, they told me they thought I was a consensus candidate. So it was a competitive appointment. You know, the way it works isn't just someone selects you and you're done. You go before what we call a Democratic Center Committee and anyone can put their name up. And many people did. But we were victorious. And I filled out the remainder of his term. I was subsequently elected in 2018 to a four-year term and I was just reelected. And over that time, I've worked on a number of things. I am currently the Democratic Caucus Chair in the Maryland House of Delegates. Uh, it's the fourth ranking position. And the youngest I ever had the role. Congratulations. That is a uh, that is a fast path through different levels of public service. I'm wondering, sitting in your chair today, a young Jazz Lewis out there who's frustrated about something, worried about tuition or or other things, having now been through this process in a bunch of different ways, what advice do you have to young activists who wanna who wanna shape policy? So the first thing I would say is Seek out mentors who are ahead of you, whether in years of life or just experience. It could really help propel you in a fast way. It definitely did in my life, whether that was getting connected to Congressman Steady Hoyer or some of the local elders in my community. That was the first part. The second part is like, you don't have to have it all figured out. You know, so one of the things that had really stressed me out earlier on was that coming from a family... My mother is a retired DEA agent. My father's electrician. My mom went to college. My dad didn't. We very much were economically mobile, right? My parents both grew up in fairly deep poverty, and me and my siblings were able to benefit from their labors, but we spent a lot of our time and effort helping family. I share that because I had no clue what I was going to do with my life other than go to college, which was the goal. And that's okay. Give yourself some grace. You don't have to have, I know it's overwhelming where people ask you, where are you going to be five years, 10, 15 years from now? You don't have to have that answer, really. You know, you can you can have a lofty goal, but just give yourself some grace and just start doing, you know? So when I started as a student activist, I didn't think I'd end up as an elected official. You know, I didn't even think I'd end up in politics. All I thought was that I didn't want to get price out of my education. You know, and then when I became a community organizer, I thought, I just want to help these people out. That led to me going to grad school and leaving from grad school is like, I want to be in a place where I could continue to learn and grow so I can make real change for people. And that's how I got the job with Steny Hoyer. But even that, I still hadn't thought about running for office. So give yourself some grace, find some mentors, uh, and it'll all work out. As you say that, I think that's really good advice. I I teach college students and I'm like, if you think you have it all figured out at 20, I'm suspicious because <laughs> I've been oh, around a long time and I didn't have it figured out. And that, that sense of grace is really important. I actually, as you were talking, I was wondering if we reverse that advice. So for, uh, for elected officials who maybe came up not through community organizing, mm-hmm. and you have community organizers showing up on your on your doorstep or in your district office. What advice do you give? Did you give Congressman Hoyer or uh, other elected officials in your caucus about 
responding to the community and responding to activists who who want to move an agenda? Yeah, this is a, that's a great question. You know, Congressman Hoyer is a moderate, though I am probably a smidge to his left. I'm not far, but from my time as a community organizer and student activist, I understand the language and passion of people who may be far to my left. And one of the things I did for him from the time I started working for him is in non-election years, which is critically important, in non-election years, building relationships with those who disagree with you on policy, you know, and giving them opportunities to see your humanity and your passion for public service. And I think that's important. I'll give a very quick example. We have an organization in the state of Maryland called Progressive Maryland. You could think of them as the state affiliate for a Bernie organization, okay? The person who leads it is one of my best friends. On policy, we disagree, you know? <laughs> but family, our, our wives are best friends, our kids are best friends. He and I started student activism together. But he wasn't a fan of Steny Hoyer's at all. You know, Canley Steny wasn't a fan of his um, either. Uh, his name was Larry Stafford. But every year... Between him and other organizations, whether it was labor organizations, environmental groups, I would make sure that they got a one-on-one with, with closed-door meeting with the U.S. House Majority Leader. And it made a big difference because after a couple of years, you know, there became a far-left candidate who was kind of inspiring, who ran against Hoyer. And I think she was hoping to recreate what happened with AOC and Joe Crowley. And she had a really hard time getting the type of support she needed to build a coalition to Alts Hoyer just because they all felt they had access to him. And I think that's important. It's not you changing your values. It's not you saying you're going to defund the police or things that like you would never do, say, or believe. But it is making sure that people know that, like, look, if there's something important to you, I'm accessible. I will pick up the phone. I will meet with you one-on-one. I will go to your office, you know, not just you coming to mine. I think it takes the sting out of, you know, the bee's stinger or whatever. I mean, I don't have a good colloquial. (laughs) Uh, But that's been very helpful, not just for him, but for me too. You know, I've had some tough votes in Annapolis over my six years, uh, especially being the, you know, the young person in leadership. I think there's different expectations of me than others. And by just making myself available to folks, it has helped me weather some storms. How is it being young in leadership? Because I imagine that there are folks who are many decades older than you, generational differences. How do you sort of work with them, but ensure that you're treated you know, as a peer and a leader uh, in your role? I think the first part is making sure I come on time and prepared to everything. That way, any stereotypes they may have for young people do not apply. Making sure that I carry myself with the utmost integrity. And and that means all the things, you know, to the, to the listeners out there that you could assume. That means, you know, not being reckless with my language, uh, how I present myself, how I allow my staff to act around people. As well, I think has allowed me to stand out. It's required a lot of patience, you know, because you know we live, you know, we we think about people's ages, and, and you think like, oh, well, you're young. I have these thoughts about you, or you're older. I have these thoughts about you, but you're shaped by not just the events in your personal life, but what's happening in the national climate at the time. So, when I'm in leadership meetings, before I say something that they will probably disagree with, 
I remind them that as a millennial, what shaped my worldview was the Al Gore Bush presidential decision, then September 11, then two world wars, Katrina, and an economic collapse that almost priced me out of my education. You know, I start from there so that their worldview may be a worldview of the American economy rapidly expanding where their parents didn't go to college, but all of them and their friends got to, and they were the first in their family to own homes and whatnot. I explained to them that most folks in my generation are expected to make less money than their parents, and they're living with them still. It's a different worldview. My youth isn't a naive perspective. It's a different lens on what's happened because you have some experiences that I didn't have the opportunity or fortune to have. But I am hoping that my kids have, right? A get to grow up in a country and a democracy that isn't under threat or falling at the seams. That, you know, we can just focus on the economy, right? And not climate change or whatever other thing is out there. And that helps. Because that way, I, I try to put in things that they can relate to. And even if we disagree on the policy issue, or even the, you know, because it's leadership political issue, they can respect where I'm coming from. And I'm just very patient with with them. I think that's a really great way to frame the conversation. Because at the end of the day, we're all coming in with our, our personal experience and the time and context in which we grew. And to to start with that, so they understand, and it's a powerful it's a powerful way to start. How has that? How has your life and experiences informed your policy choices in terms of what you want to focus on in the legislature? What you've been able to accomplish? So the legislative district that I represent, which I grew up in, is in a county called Prince George's County, Maryland, which is the wealthiest predominantly black county in the nation. But it's a tale of two cities, like most places in the country. As I was coming of age, and particularly in college and all that, I saw many folks who moved from California or Georgia or New York to come to Washington, D.C. to get a good job, start a business, and really live out their American dream. I saw many of them either lose it or come very close to lose it during the recession. You know, there's there's a saying, particularly in the black community, that when America gets a cold, minorities catch the flu, right? Or pneumonia. Well, for a community that was viewed as the wealth of predominantly black, it got hit really, really hard. So I focus very heavily on issues of racial wealth and, and the racial wealth gap. And it's not exactly in money. It could be, you know, I work on issues of making access to health care, not just insurance, but care more accessible for people in the urban and rural parts of the state. I focus on criminal justice reform from an economics perspective, making sure that, you know, folks aren't entering the system and losing those opportunities to, to make wages that could lift their family out of poverty. And therefore, they're not getting those wages. So what do you think their family's going to do? Come to the state and the government for support but also making sure that we give them real opportunity to come out and have a second chance for the very same reason. We don't want them rehabilitating. We don't want to spend 40 grand a year housing these folks that could be productive members of our economy. And also we don't want to have the opportunity cost loss of how they could change communities just by their presence. 
you know, so one of the, the I'm not going to get too deep in the policy, but one of the, the bills that I have, that I'm, two I'll speak very quickly of, that I'm really excited about, one, I passed both of them. The Juvenile Restoration Act was a bill that would allow people who were sentenced to really long sentences as minors to come home uh, or given the opportunity to come home if they've rehabilitated themselves after serving 20 years. So that's going to bring a couple hundred people home who, for all intents and purposes, have no threat to public safety. The second bill I pass is allowing those same individuals and other people who have a record or were incarcerated at some point to get access to a micro lending fund uh, where they can start their own businesses because we know of the challenges many folks with a record face in the the banking industry uh, and getting access to loans. Many of them we want you know to be workers, but some of them are very entrepreneurial and they are less inclined to discriminate against someone with a record you know, than, the, than the rest of the public. So if we empower them to create their own companies and hire people, not only are they growing the economy, they are, they are putting people back to work. And we know the most critical time for someone who's coming home from incarceration is the first six months. Your chance of recidivating uh, jumps to close to 90% if you haven't gained employment within the first six months. So frankly, us not having as a society to assist and support these individuals uh, because they're able to find gainful employment or whatnot, frees us up to fund a world-class education or to allow our uh, seniors to age with dignity and in place and do all the really creative, innovative things we want to do instead of just trying to heal from yesterday, right? So those are the things that that excite me. and. How do you build support for that constituency because they don't have lobbyists uh, <laughs> in Annapolis? They're 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 mar- they're by definition marginalized communities, and you have a Republican governor for uh, yes. you had a Republican governor. How did you how, how did you make that case to to be able to get that bill across the line? So I'll, I'll focus on the first one, the Juvenile Restoration Act. So this bill was really important. There's been Supreme Court cases on the brain science of juveniles and children showing that, you know, you don't fully mature intellectually until you're 25 to 26. So, you know, you give a permanent sentence like life without the possibility of parole to someone who you think does not have the capacity to change. It is one part punishment, but also the fact that we think you are incapable of rehabilitation. And I think for the most part, we generally don't believe that children are incapable of change. Right. And our Supreme Court, our, you know, conservative leaning (laughs) Supreme Court has ruled that. Other states start passing bills similar to the one that I sponsored. You know, very liberal states like Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia and very conservative places like Washington, (laughs) D.C. So it it became very stark that, you know, Maryland was out of step. The year before I had this bill, I had encouraged the presiding officers of the legislature to do a pilot where we began reviewing criminal justice legislation for from a racial equity lens. And that means we would collect readily available data, both from public sources like Department of Corrections, but also academic data that, that they have in different journals and data sets on how a different proposal would affect those communities. So- we established a pilot. When I brought the bill and the data came back on the demographics of who is incarcerated, we found out that Maryland, which is a state that's 30% African-American, 
those who are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, 87% are black, which just didn't make sense given the ratios of people committing very similar crimes. They were getting other charges. So there's a disparity there. I got a Republican in the state Senate to be my co-sponsor. I was very intentional about that because I didn't want this to be viewed from a partisan lens. You know, I think this, this is a, uh, these are sentences that as a society, we went wrong on, frankly, we went too hard. And he approached the issue as um, I thought he would from an economic issue of, you know, if these individuals likelihood to reoffend, I mean, a parking ticket reoffend is less than 1%, then why are we paying forty-five dollars to $55,000 per inmate a year until they die in their 80s for something they did when they were 15 and they've probably been rehabilitated by now? And that can allow us to redirect that money to other more useful purposes for society as a whole. I share that view in addition to the general, you know, humane view of this this isn't uh, the best place for them. We pushed the bill. We had a massive coalition that we built up. And I want to say, you know, I, I appreciate his bravery, but it wasn't easy for me either. You know, I, I said earlier, I have a mother who is retired law enforcement. I was just about to ask that. You know, I had friends who had... Um, lost loved ones to to young folks who had did terrible crimes, who had messaged me saying that like, you know, they would never talk to me again for introducing this bill. But it was the right thing to do. You know, it was the right thing to do. My mother did come along when she saw the data. Uh, she, she, you know, reminded me that she raised me right. And, but we had a massive coalition. I had to convince some of the more conservative folks in my party, as well as some of the progressives in my party who wanted to go further, who didn't want to just focus on minors and just, you know, kind of let everybody out, essentially. And I don't think that's justice for those, uh, for the victims, frankly. So we got the bill through, and then the governor vetoed it. He didn't signal ahead of time, but there was a campaign by some of the conservatives, and he ended up vetoing it. And uh, we had to override his veto. And, you know, my, my Senate colleague was in the unenviable position of having to help lead an effort to override a veto of his own governor, right? But we, we got it done. Just last month, I got an opportunity to meet with 25 people who've been released from the bill. So the bill entitles you to a hearing after 20 years. And 45 people have had the hearing. Of the 45, 25 have been released. The other 20, the judge said no. I think that's a critical point. That means you have not rehabilitated, you know, or... Public safety is better served by you staying incarcerated. It was a very responsible bill. But 25 had come home. Another 25, one was a woman. And I got to meet about 20 of them, including the woman, uh, about a week ago. No, sorry, about a month ago. And it was just phenomenal. I mean, people who, you know, these are folks who owned what they did. They did not make excuses for their behavior. But they showed how they have used their time productively. And now that they're home, what they're trying to do and it was also very interesting because a couple of the victims' families, or whatever it is that they did, were the ones who were testifying for them to be released as part of their own healing. So others had the opposite approach, but it was it was a phenomenal it was a phenomenal moment. Uh, it made me feel like the work is worth it. Can you give us an example of what some of those folks are up to now that they've been gotten their freedom? Yeah, so a couple of them are have gone into advocacy primarily as more people come home. They're helping them get 
acclimated, finding the critical things you need, such as housing and a job and transit to get to and fro uh, for where you need to, to be. The judge can place conditions on your release too. So not everyone's just released scotch-free. You, you know, you may still need to see probation officer or, or whatever conditions the judge wants. So they help them with that and just resetting up their life. Another one is in the process of training for a CDL license and wants to start his own trucking company down the line and hire um, just qualified people, but including folks who are formerly incarcerated so that they can know there's a pipeline of jobs coming out. The woman I met is just waiting for the opportunity to reconnect with her children who, you know, she had really early in life. She had to be 15 or 16 and has never really had a chance to hug them as an adult. And um, I think they're in conversations of, of doing that. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, I, w- I would also say it was very, so this bill we debated in 2021 and normally criminal justice bills are particularly when you're focusing on prison reform, it's tough because the prisoners can't come and testify. Right. But those who are upset can. And the fact that that legislature, legislative session was mostly virtual, actually, even the odds, because many of them were able to send letters and send emails, because that's all the other side could do as well. And it allowed us to really just focus on the data. Yeah. So, so as you go into a new legislative session, with now a Democratic governor, what are your priorities? So I'll keep them brief for you guys. I'll <laughs> spare you. But I do serve on the Appropriations Committee. And uh, the state of Maryland, we, we anticipate getting a little over $6 billion in federal infrastructure money that we have to disseminate. And I am hoping that we can leverage this federal partnership and investment to do something transformational where we connect communities, where we do transit-oriented development along a lot of our um, commuter transit stops, whether it's improving the port of Baltimore so that we can bring more goods in and out, which will create jobs in the Baltimore region or in the rural parts of the state that don't have as many anchors, you know, building at our Mark and Amtrak stations such that it helps them with tourism and, and, you know, just attracting people to vacation and whatnot. And connecting housing with those transit options so that we move people from driving as much uh, and lower our carbon footprint a bit. Uh, I think it's just a transformational opportunity on what we can do, but also who will do the building, uh, which I think is key, right? Making sure that we are empowering workers and small businesses, folks of color, you know, rural communities to do this work in their communities, which will generate wealth for them and their families for generations untold. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping this session will be one that I get to tell like my kids about one day of how like, yeah, you see that there in the state and this, that of the state, daddy had a part in that, you know? So it's going to be exciting. That is exciting. Let me just say, I always, I always believe the idea of government procurement and then also the preferences on different projects could be the single biggest way to build wealth uh, and 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 opportunity. And I'm glad that it's finally starting to happen, where it's starting to be part of the, every conversation, because I think this that's an easy way 
to give a lot of people opportunity who 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 should have it. And so I'm I'm hopeful there's a model uh, in what you're doing in Maryland that can be uh, taken to a lot of other states and places. We're we're hoping. You know, we have a new attorney general. We we have all the. You know, our party has all the constitutional positions now. And, you know, we I didn't agree with Larry Hogan on everything. But we could work with him on some stuff. But one thing I'm really looking forward to is that we have this challenge when it comes to equity issues in government where too often we can't just do what's equitable. We have to wait until there is an uh, inequitable outcome. And we can do a disparity study to show there's an inequitable outcome to then try to fix it. The problem is that in the marketplace, once winners and losers are set, it's really hard for government to come then and correct it, right? And one of the things I'm hoping that Maryland can do over this next four-year term that we have is figure out, you know, and anybody listening, if there's any academic, you know, scholars out there from a legal side or otherwise who has some ideas, how we can change our legal system to build equity in up front as opposed to assuming we have to wait until there's an inequitable outcome that we can point to data and then fix it. That's that's one of the things that we're really interested in figuring out in Maryland and hopefully being a model for other people, whether that's in, you know, we legalize cannabis. Uh, so we're going to go through the regulatory framework for that. Obviously, the $6 billion in infrastructure money that's coming um, as well. We're right next to Washington, D.C. So we anticipate over the next decade about you know, 2 million people coming to this region. They have to be housed and they have to get to and fro. And we want to make sure that we build wealth for people here on the front end (laughs) instead of waiting until, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this community, that community didn't really get a fair shot in it. And now we want to remediate. I think we could do better now. I think we could do better, Uh, but we need, we need some creative solutions. And anybody out there, I'm open ears. (laughs) All right. Yeah. You're going to get some emails, I'm sure. My last question, I don't want to ask what you're going to do next, but I want to ask how you think about what you're going to do next. And so, you know, you've you've had a lot of opportunity and been in some Im- important spots. And so, how do you decide where best to apply your talents? So, how I answer that has, has definitely changed over, over the years. Before, it was just very much where do I think I could have the most impact while also learning under some other person's covering still. Because I think one lesson that um, my parents always taught me is that no matter where you are in your career in your life, you should still be learning under someone in some capacity. It just It's just good to be accountable to other people, uh, whether that was me working for Stenny. And now, uh, even though I'm in house leadership, I'm learning from the speaker and other people who are ahead of me. It's changed recently because, you know, I've been married since before I was in the legislature, but now I'm a dad. I have a two-year-old. Uh, he's wonderful. He was a pandemic baby. And now I think about what will allow me to have the most impact without sacrificing family time. I don't want to miss the moments. Uh, so I'm kind of triangulating now, and, and it has actually given me a bit of rest to not be in a rush and make sure that my wife and I feel like my family is secure in anything that I do would be good because public servants, we sacrifice a lot on the family front uh, to do this work. You know, you 
in the state legislature is part-time. So many of us have day jobs. And then you got to go to community meetings in the evening. You know, and you may set up meetings in the morning before your job starts so that you can, you know, touch as many people as possible. And then you have stuff on the weekends. So you start to think, well, what, what are you sacrificing here? Right? Your own time that you just may need to fill your cup and your family's time. And that causes a lot of trouble. And for me, kind of watching others who've done this, I don't, I don't, I don't want it to go that way. So, you know, I'm very ambitious to see whatever is next in my career. Uh, I'm happy to serve, but I'm on the timetable that is also best for my family. It's a good answer. It's a very good answer. Delegate Jazz Lewis, thank you for joining us on Honorable Profession. We love having you in the New Deal Network and look forward to seeing whatever path you pick uh, that's right for you, your state, and your family. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.